0: Hey, this is Andy Jenkins. I am back. Uh, I'm, of course, you know, I'm sitting in the third floor in my attic on my desk overlooking the neighborhood, the backyard, and, I, and it just occurred to me that, uh, gee, we've got this little retaining wall out back. Uh, a couple years ago, we had a driveway that came all the way up through the backyard, and we decided to uh, take out the driveway Uh, We still have a small one, way in the backyard, but take that driveway out and really just put some grass, kind of level up the backyard a little bit, so now there's just kind of this nice level playing place for the kids where we've got, I'm looking at a volleyball net and a trampoline and a wooden plaything like they have you know, Lowe's or Home Depot, those kits that you get that you put together uh, that they didn't have when we were kids. When we were kids, we just played on... Well, it was metal, it was steel, and it was on concrete on the blacktop, you know, and things have changed on that. So we got one of those, and there's this little retaining wall at the back of the backyard with uh, these big 12-inch railroad ties. And right now, all of them are covered with chalk drawings, like that thick, 1-inch, thick, 5-inch, long-ish, something like that size, multicolored, white, blue, pink, yellow, green, chalk and I think I've just decided while I'm looking there that, given a couple sticks of chalk, there is no surface that my kids won't cover with that chalk. So through the backyard we've got these little, uh, they're about two foot by two foot concrete uh, pavers that I just kind of put and made a sidewalk that kind of winds and wraps down the side of the backyard a couple years ago, got them off Craigslist. Um, paid like a buck a piece or something for them, you know, and uh, a lot of those, they're covered with chalk drawings also, so that's kind of where I'm at. Now, uh, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. I was was trying to think, is there a clever intro from that to this, or no, that's just a piece of real everyday life. So uh, it's the afternoon, and I want to take a little bit of time and talk to you about this idea of simplicity easy of the idea that Jesus came to make things easier and he came to make things light and not overburdensome and that was a radical departure from how things were back when he was around uh, walking the planet earth and that is a really radical departure from how we tend to make things today. Now let me kind of footnote right here. I told you I told you I was gonna release the new book the new ebook, Redemption, that that would be on my website yet. And um, it is not ready yet. I, I'm still kind of editing and still kind of going back through that and keep tweaking it, shifting it. And, and it's, it's one of those things where I want to get it. I, I know it's going to kind of be a work in progress even after I kind of release it because what will happen is uh, some of you will read it and you'll ask some great questions and that will help me think, aha, I haven't said this part clearly. Or, or some of you will have new ideas. And it'll be one of those things where it's, oh, absolutely, I've got to include this and I, I need to cut something else or, or whatever. So I, I know it's going to be a work in progress, but I'm looking at it and kind of putting on that, you know, it's 98% done and it's that last 2% where you're kind of thinking, all right, let me knock the rough off here. Let me say this a little bit clearer. And so I thought, you know, in the last episode, I promised I was going to have it ready right now. And uh, honestly, I've already recorded two, three episodes for that ebook. And which, which will be a book book uh, in about another month. And so I've already recorded that and I thought, well, let me just go ahead and drop them. but the problem is in those episodes I'm saying, hey, go download the ebook. So um, looking forward, maybe maybe right after this one, right on the hills of this one, we'll have that done and I'm thinking I'm thinking so because I'm dropping these out about every three or four days. And so by doing this little talk It buys me three or four more days to get that wrapped up And I I think I just need about a day, right? Then I got to set it up on the website and all that kind of stuff So uh, it's coming And I would encourage you to kind of listen back the next week or so And uh, I I think sooner than that, actually By the time that you have this one on air I'm hoping it's going to be like ready to go So that when I release that next episode it's, It's going to be there all right. So, uh, simplicity. Uh, I was watching this documentary on Netflix on minimalism. That's kind of uh, a thing as we start you know, maneuvering around. I told you that we've redone our office. We've moved boys downstairs, moved us upstairs. Um, as you start doing that and you start painting in the house, It's amazing when you start painting, you realize how much stuff that you have. This happens when you move. You realize how much stuff is there that's cluttered, that's uh, a lot of it that's honestly adding value to your life, and then a lot of it that's just, why do I keep storing and maintaining and moving the same exact stuff around and around? And so when we're painting the house, you know, you got to move all the stuff out of the room in order to paint the room. And so it's just kind of decluttering, and it's just kind of simplifying, and it's just kind of getting rid of some things, and you know, you go through the closet, we kind of have this rule at Christmas, or birthdays, or whenever we, whenever we go shop, you know, we have this rule that when you get something, you got to give up something, so a new shirt goes in, that means an old one goes out, but but I'm looking at it thinking, man, there, there needs to be just more purging, more cleansing than that. And so recently, that's kind of all come to rise again because we're, we're doing this kind of painting in the rooms of the house thing. And I'm watching this documentary on minimalism and how people are just uh, kind of going, yes, there's got to be this simplicity to life. And there's this simplicity of when you have less stuff and when you have less obligations, you have the ability to actually uh, raise the quality of, Of the stuff that you do have. And by focusing less on the less important things, you can focus more on the things that matter the most. Okay. And so, and that's a big move. That's not just in minimalism with stuff, that's a big move even in business right now. I'm seeing lots of chatter about hey, you know, there's a great book called The One Thing where they argue hey, you just focus on there's something that you do that delivers more output. And it may be a very small thing. It's something that has way more output that's exponential compared to what it actually requires of you. Uh, we, we teach that at the Men's Advance. I'm, I'm going to one of those again in September. We, we do those every, it seems about September and about every February. And, and when we get there, we'll talk about that. And there's this, there are a few things that when you really jam on those few things, they have an exponential output. And here's, here's one thing that I, I just want to land on. I, I don't certainly want to say, because this is kind of a faith-driven podcast, I, I certainly want to say that um, Jesus came to give you three easier steps or seven easier steps. In fact, I think that's kind of where we dilute the message of the gospel of just radical, unconditional grace, and we start diluting it to steps, and we start diluting it to things that, that He never did. But, but I will say this, from the outset, Jesus came to make it easy, it had become infinitely complex by the time that Jesus is walking on planet Earth, and when He came, He came to make it easy. Now, when things started and in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then boom, they start calling all creation into existence. And when man and woman show up, it was so simple that they really stewarded the garden, and they're adding value to it, and they walk with God, and they know Him, and, and He knows them. And and there's just this beautiful, no shame, this beautiful... In fact, the scripture even says it like this. They were naked, and they had no shame. They were truly, fully known by each other and fully knew each other. And that was true not just with each other, but with God. Like All the relationships were exactly what they should be. Now, if you keep on reading the story... Everything's kind of functioning under this grace mentality until, uh, well, John 1 says the law came through Moses. John 1 says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. So the first entry of the law and the first entry of anything that's going to make religion complex, the first insertion of any rules happens at Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 20, records it. Moses goes up on the mountain. You know the story. He comes back with two tablets of stone and the rules, 10 of them. It's called the Decalogue, interestingly enough. The rules are engraved in the stones. Now, here's, here's what's interesting about that. Originally, Decalogue is what uh, Hebrew rabbis would call that deka deca means 10. You, you got that from the decathlon, um, deka, log, word, 10 words. The Hebrew language is so much more economical than English. And so whereas we have to have lots of sentences, you know, thou shalt not murder. Uh, you should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You know, um, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt, not. You know, all these other Most of them are don'ts, right? Like I grew up in the church and you could probably reduce everything, every, everything down to one word. Don't, uh, right? That's kind of how we, we saw it. Don't run in church. Don't smile. Don't, you know, I'll tell you this this is kind of just a rabbit trail of a thing. Uh, there was a, a local, it was called Shop A Snack. Shop A Snack was this gas station slash convenience store. And it was one where you could first go into, I remember when I was a kid and they had fountain drinks with the good ice and you could go in and then they had the small, the medium, the large. And eventually they had this thing that was a refillable cup that had this special top on it. And if you bought this refillable cup, it was like $3, which back then that was, I mean it'd be the equivalent of like seven or eight bucks now, but it was like three bucks and you bought it. It was called a big squeeze. It's probably 24, 25, 30, 32 ounces. If you bought a big squeeze, you could take that thing into shop a snack and you can get it refilled for I I don't even remember what it was, like 59 cents. So we bought them, and then whenever we got our gas filled up, you know, we'd take it in and refill it. But we, we would refill them all the time. We'd be walking around school with a big squeeze. And I remember one of my friends, his name was Eric, he uh he had in fact we we actually called him we called him Chucklehead. That was his nickname, Chucklehead. Um, and for short it was Chuck. One day we're in church on a Sunday night. We had church Sunday morning, Sunday night. We had church on Wednesday night. We had visitation on Tuesday night. We had a lot of church. Uh, so one night on Sunday night, uh, he's there. And I remember Chucklehead has brought the big squeeze into the sanctuary. And he has tucked it, because you weren't supposed to have sodas in the sanctuary. Now now a lot of times they have coffee and you know, and you can take it in there. But you weren't supposed to have this there. And he had it and it was underneath the pew, and at some point during the service, he decides to reach under the pew, and he grabs the big squeeze, and he pulls it, and he starts, you know, undoes, that. have this big kind of pop-out, fold-out, kind of accordion-type uh, plastic straw, and he pulls it out, and all of a sudden, yeah, and there's my train coming. It seems like the train always comes when I'm recording, and he, he pulls it out, and uh, right when he gets that thing to his ma- mouth, you can tell where this is going. Uh, About three rows, four rows back, there's this lady. She was one of kind of the self-appointed informants in the church. Self-appointed spiritual police. You know, every every church has got at least one or two. You know, we we had probably, thinking back at, we we had at least two, maybe three. And so she's one of them. And she's, she's probably 65 or 70 years old. And she basically hurdles... The pew in the middle of the service and jumps right up there and snatches and corrects that whole situation. And I'm pretty sure that she walked away with that big squeeze. And because drinking in church, and I'm not talking about alcohol, I mean anything, drinking in church, whether it's water, whether it's coffee, I don't even know anybody drank coffee back then, it wasn't cool yet, whether it is a big squeeze. I don't even know if you could feed a baby in church, all right? Drinking in church, running in church, wearing a hat in the sanctuary, doing all sorts of things. Don't. We had summarized it all as don't. Don't, 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 don't. Now, in Moses' day, they had it down to 10 words, 10 rules whereby you follow God. And you, you think that that would be, 10 words would be enough to teach you how to live in a relationship with God, how to live in a relationship with other people. That's really what the key was. The key wasn't the rules. The key was living in honor, living in a relationship. But what happens is that's not enough. Moses comes down from the mount and you kind of know that story. Like what happens when he comes down is while he's up meeting with God, ironically, they're downstairs the mountain breaking the first commandment like they built a golden calf which is you know no other gods before me there's presumably false worship which well there was that which in those cultures always entailed rampant sexuality so there's this idea some commentators and scholars think there's probably some sort of uh, orgies going on because false sexuality with uh, temple priestesses would be very common in that culture. You know, if you wanted a union with a god, you would union with one of the priestesses on Earth. So people think there's probably some of that chaos going on, all kinds of just nonsense. Now, you get this picture: these are the people that have been redeemed from slavery with nothing. God gave them the riches of Egypt; they could use that for very beautiful things. You know, building a tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness, such that um, the Scripture says the priest actually had to restrain them from bringing more. They brought so much, right? That is the first and last time I've ever seen any kind of spiritual organization say, whoa, we got too much. So they could use everything they had for glory, for honor, for beauty. At the same time, it could be destructive. So they had these 10 words, and these 10 words were really, the 10 commandments, 10 words were really going to teach them how to live in a relationship with their Heavenly Father, how to live in relationship with each other, They've messed it up immediately. They've messed it up, like right while they're receiving these 10 words. Even though, if you read the scripture right there, it says that they say all that God says we can do. Like, we, we can keep these laws. And so, here's what happens they break those laws immediately, and they do what we typically do. We think that if there is law breaking going on, that what we need is not a renovation of the heart. What we need is more rules. And so we instantly add more laws. We instantly add more rules. I mean, this is why America's got such a strange tax code, right? People mess it up. So we don't just fix it. We add more rules. Um, This is why our prisons are so overpopulated. You know, we have issues going on. We don't figure out what's going on, you know, in the inner city. Why are people doing... The things that they do, which honestly, you know, you get a slap on the wrist for doing it in the suburb, in the inner city, you just go to jail. What well, we, don't, we don't fix the system. We, we just add more rules. And with more rules, there's more violations. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The strength of sin is the law. It's rules that actually create more sin. In Romans 7, he says, hey, the good that I want to do, that's not what I end up doing. So I find out like, there's this law at work inside of me when I see something I shouldn't do that automatically gives rise to wanting to do that. I mean, those of you who are parents, you have a kid, you've seen this one before, right? You've seen it where... You know, it's like you tell a kid, hey, don't do that. And instantly, just because you said don't do it, you know, it's like, oh, wow. Like, I've got to try that. Like, your kid will bend over backwards trying to do that very thing that you said don't do. Or if you do tell them to do something, hey, do this one. Need to make sure that you, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is that you want them to do. Goodness, a lot of times, like, won't they expend any amount of energy, any amount of time to avoid doing it like you're thinking it'd just be easier just to get it over with and just go take out the trash or just to you know go say I'm sorry or just to whatever it is that you told them to do it'd be so much easier just to do it but instead of just shortcutting life and doing it they they you know spent all this energy and all this drama and all this okay that goes back to goes way back to the beginning it goes way back back back. And that's a, probably a topic for a different conversation. Well, I, I know it is, because like I'm, I'm kind of thinking through some of these great things I want to talk about on here. But Moses, back to Moses, they have 10 rules, 10, 10 do's and don'ts, and they mess them up. And so the solution is, let's add more rules. Let's add more stuff. And what happens if you start reading through the book of... Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, what you come up with is there are 613 rules. 613 laws. And they started off with none. And and when they're freed, they're freed with no rules. And they go to Mount Sinai, and all of a sudden we've got 10 words. So 10 words, shorter than the average English sentence, I would think. 10 words. Ten works to live by. And they instantly mess it up. They instantly ruin it. Uh, they're, they're messing it up while Moses is getting it. And so we come up with instantly ten times ten times. We, we come up with 613. Now, scholars divide these things into moral rules, which kind of teach us moral is. You don't even have to remember this part. Remember 613. Moral laws mean, hey, that, that's kind of how we um, live and relate to each other. You know, don't commit adultery. Or if I am doing something um, and it causes you harm, you know, I I dig a ditch and your ox falls into it. I need to make amends for that. That's that's in the rules, you know. And again, most of these were well intended. They were to teach people how to live in relationship with each other. They weren't just rules for the sake of rules and nonsense rules. They were really to show people, uh, you know, hey, if you build a house, you know, and you got this, they kind of stacked houses on top of houses. You know, you need you need to have a railing around it. Right, so some of them were even like building code type things, so that people don't fall off. A, lots of moral rules to teach people how to live in a relationship with each other. Things like, hey, if you're walking down the street and you see your neighbor's animal, and your neighbor's not there, it's a rule that you grab the animal and you take your time and take this back to the neighbor um, to help each other. Right? So these these are incredible things. You you look at this and you think, man, if people lived like that. Today and there are certainly people that do live a lot like that. But but you think by and large, gosh, if everybody did that, you know, I mean, this is what Jesus is getting to in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, "Do unto others as you would have them do unto you." It's it's very practical, very common sense laws. Now they also had civil laws. Civil laws were how do you live. As a nation, civil laws were. What do you do when there's war? Civil laws were. Hey, if you have strangers and and uh, people that are sojourners, they're immigrants from other countries, and this is kind of a lightning rod issue here today in the U.S. And you have these people that want to come and they want to live among you. They they need to subsume into your culture. You should accept them. And you should accept them with open arms, and you should accept them as one of you, uh, which, let, let me just kind of choose some stereotypes, okay, which Democrats go, oh, wow, yeah, 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 rock on, rock on. And the Republicans would be like, well, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about accepting Bill as one of us. And, and then Moses goes on and says, you got to accept them as one of you, but they need to become one of you. They they need to give up the old identity of the old country and really become part of part of you. To which the Republicans would say, yeah, and the Democrats would go, no, right. So there's these things that are in there that are very beautiful that we we would all look at and go, okay, we're all right. Let's let's look through civil civil laws. Okay, I'm not going to go through all of what they are. I just kind of picked up that one off the top of my head because it's so current. It, it tells you what to do when somebody. Um, is consistently defying and tearing up the community, and there there are certain things in there that um, elicit the death penalty, and there's certain things that don't, and there's rules in there that even tell you, you know, if somebody's guilty or not, or how can you determine if they're guilty? You know, you can't just do this on a whim. You know, you really have to honor and presume the innocence of the person first, right? All kinds of civil laws. There's also religious laws. Religious laws about how how do you worship? How should that take place, and where should you worship? Do we all just do this in the way that we feel like we should, or or is there is there a stack pool of truth, a norm, you know, a standard somewhere in that? So they, they've got all of these, and, and the point of this isn't to say what they are to give you my thoughts or commentary on the. The point is to say they've gone from ten words, ten words to six hundred and thirteen laws 613 not 613 words but 613 some of these laws are sentences and some of these are paragraphs okay 10 words to 613 that you you think that would be enough and you think that would be enough to get along but what happened was you had this one thing added to 613 which was okay get this it's called the mishnah and the mishnah is the oral tradition now, the oral tradition comes along, and the oral tradition is, it's done with good intention. It's done to explain how you should interpret those laws. So, for instance, uh, let me give you one. Like So, the, the law, the Ten Words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments would say, Honor the Sabbath. That was in there. Um, the laws, the 613, would come by and say, Hey, you should not work on the Sabbath, Uh, And the laws would come by and they would say, and this is, you know, in the Old Testament would come by and say, hey, you should not start a fire or prepare food on the Sabbath. Um, You should prepare that food the night before so that you can completely rest and take that day to not focus on all these things, just to have sacred space that it's designed not to restrain you, but it's for you. Well, the Mishnah would come along and the Mishnah said, well, the law doesn't really define what work is. So, is it work if uh, is it is it work if uh, you spill something and you need to clean that up, or is it work if uh, hey you know something fell over on the Sabbath, uh, somebody's roof caved in on the Sabbath, there was a storm, and there, is it work for uh, people like if we're just applying this to our culture, you know, now is it work for the firemen to go put that fire out? Is it work? For the policemen to go direct traffic when there's a traffic accident. And you think, well, they didn't have that stuff back then. Well, absolutely they did. They had 4 million people that left them um, from slavery that were at Mount Sinai, that were now figuring out how to live with each other. You know, before they were slaves, they didn't have any self determination. They were following the law, the rigid, rigid, rigid rules of Pharaoh. So now they're kind of figuring out how, how do we do all this stuff? And so again, we go from 10. And then we go to 613 laws, and then we have those laws, and we have people start interpreting those orally. Okay, so this is what's acceptable. You know, if it's cold, uh, we're not supposed to start a fire on the Sabbath, um, but that's generally taken to mean we can't cook on the Sabbath. But if we're cold, can we start a fire so that we can keep warm? You know, the, things like this. It's again, it's well intended. It's not. None of this is done out of the sense of oh, we're just going to control, right? Well, they kept making all of these so they go for the Mishnah and then you you think well that would that would be enough you know you you think well if you got the Mishnah that's enough but but it turns out having the Mishnah wasn't enough so they added this thing to that called the Talmud. So I want you to get the picture and, and you can actually if you go do a search on this and go Google it you'll get a picture and just do do the Google search for Talmud T-A-L-M-U-D and when it comes up You're going to see it, and what's going to happen is you'll see a page of it. Go to the images uh, where you can search, you know, whether you want to look for text or video or just look images. And when you get to the Talmud, what you're going to see is inside of it, you're going to have a little bitty box in the middle of the page, and that's going to be the law. That's going to be those 613 rules. Uh, actually, that that could actually be anywhere in the Old Testament. So really, they'd kind of taken the 613 and turned that to the entire Old Testament. Which back in Jesus' day, the Old Testament was the only Testament. Okay, so you, be sure you get that when we're referring to uh, really the Bible. Jesus read the Bible. Jesus read was the only Testament. Was the Old Testament. So you got this law in the middle of the page. And around that, you're going to see the Mishnah, and it's going to kind of look like more text that's kind of circling that. Um, and again, the Mishnah is the oral tradition that later people had to start writing down because these rabbis are, are dying and these religious leaders, you know, are passing through the generations, So they're, they're putting that down. And so it looks kind of like it's um, uh, just blocks of text around the law, which is in the middle, which again, that law was expanding upon 10 words originally, and they came up with this thing called the Talmud. And if you look up the Talmud, you're going to see another layer of text around the other layer of text, which was a layer of text around the law, which was all wrapped around the ten words. Okay? So you get the idea there. Now, now this was this a—what's was um, the best way to say it? The, be, the best way to say it is this. Um, it is commentary on the commentary on the law. Okay, this this is a commentary on the commentary, and again, it's well intentioned to show people how to live um, underneath, underneath, underneath God. Now everybody everybody adopted this. Um, everybody got on with it, you know, and they started um, really following it, and they started building schools of thought upon it. Um, but but that wasn't where they stopped. That's not where they stopped. They went and added this fifth layer, okay? And so this fifth layer was the legal commentary. This fifth layer was legal comments that would be created by scribes who were legal scholars all all throughout the New Testament when you start referring to uh, lawyers and scribes. You're referring to people who were commentators on the commentary, okay? And this is, this is your Pharisees are adopting this. Your um, all, all of these religious leaders are adopting it. And it's all well intended, but it is adding layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer on everything that was originally designed to work with 10 words. Do you see the picture there? How it's gotten infinitely complex. By, by the way... Um, these were called, if you just kind of Google this one, you'll see it. Um, go go Google the Talmud or go look at the commentary uh, there, of the legal comments. And they were actually called fences and hedges. So you'll see in the New Testament, you'll see Jesus talking about things. He'll say like, hey, you, you build fences and hedges around the law that keep people out. And what he's talking about is... Not just a literal fence like you have in your house or a literal fence that you have in a yard. He's talking about literally, like you make the rule so difficult. You put so many things out there, whereas God's rule was, for instance, honor the Sabbath. And one of you comes along and he says, well, that means no working on the Sabbath. And then you guys all disagree as to what that working means. So, you start getting into these commentaries on, well, pr- police can work and uh, people who are doctors can work because they need to help deliver the babies or midwives, what they have in that culture, they can work. But um, people who are bakers and chefs, they can't work. Okay, uh, Or we start defining, well, it's not just employment-type services that constitute work. So if if a neighbor's house falls in on the Sabbath, you can work to help them get that up, but can you put the house back together or not? You know, Or um, should we make sure they have shelter for the evening or not? Uh, Well, once we start allowing that, well, what about contractors? Can they work on the Sabbath or do we have, you know, you get this just, and and some people would say, well, it's just a slippery slope, and you just start sliding down. Once you open one, you open all, you know, all this argument back and forth. And so all these people are starting just fragmenting, picking their own teams and their own people that they follow, And and they all started following different different rabbis. Now, they had some great terminology for this, and the terminology they had was called this. It's called binding and loosing. And so the rabbis would use language uh, that meant, I, I forbid certain things. That means I bind them or I allow things. That means I loose them. I bind means I forbid, I loose means I allow. Now, uh, I've heard people, particularly the Pentecostal strike, charismatic stripe, and I, I'm not making fun, I'm just saying kind of this just is what it is. they'll say things like, you know, they're praying, and they just bind the devil. You know, well, that's, and, and they'll say, well, Jesus, you said, when they pray, they'll say, you said whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, so we just bind the devil. Well, the devil's not in heaven you're not binding and that's not even what this verse is talking about and the book of colossians says that on the cross jesus stripped the devil of his authority you know so anyway that's another comment for another time binding and loosing is not a spiritual warfare teaching binding and loosing is what's allowed and what's not allowed and so when jesus tells peter in matthew chapter 16 where you know he says um, you're Peter, and on this rock i 'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it and I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven what he's doing is he's given peter he's given his church he's given his he's given his followers Jesus is giving his disciples he's giving them room to make some interpretation on the scripture he's giving them room to apply it he's saying wait you don't have to be contained by 613 rules plus the commentary, plus the commentary on the commentary, plus the commentary on the commentary of the commentary. You don't have to be contained by that. I'm giving you the authority to really see what this means. They they had this other phrase that was called fulfilling the Torah. Now, when people that were Jewish referred to the Torah, they they generally referred to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers. In Deuteronomy, um, which, which by the way, most of the time when Jesus is quoting um, is quoting the Old Testament, he's quoting really from the book of Deuteronomy. Most of the time, though, he does do other things. Torah. And they would say, you've fulfilled Torah. Now, now what they meant by fulfilling Torah was you have done something or you have said something that has gotten to the essence of what the heart of Torah is. So, like when Jesus says, hey, I, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy Torah. He says, I come to fulfill the Torah. Now, this, is, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill Torah. He's saying, like, I came to deliver the essence of Torah. Not, not. he's not saying I came to get all the minutia, all the micro-legalistic things that are all through it. He's not saying I came to to do that. Now, now you know, uh, as well as I do, that Jesus fulfilled, you know, hundreds and thousands of prophecies that were in the Torah that uh, said that he's coming, but he's not referring to that in that passage. He's saying, I came to give you the essence of what Torah is. So in the Torah, when it says, honor your father and mother, I've came, I came to show you what that means. I can I came to show you what that looks like. It, it looks like a guy dying on the cross and making sure that his best friend knows to care for his mother as if she is his own and making sure that mother knows to see this best friend as if he is her son and he will, he will do the things for her a son will do. That's part of the essence of Torah, um, Torah is um, loving your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, um, your neighbor is when a woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter eight is thrown at your feet. You, you don't say, "Hey, good for you! Like you're 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 a you're living it up, man! You're sexually free." No, no, it's it's not a overly permissive, do whatever you want to type thing, but it's a thing that doesn't condemn her either. It's one that defends her honor and pushes the accusers away and doesn't condemn her but releases her you see he says i came i came to fulfill torah and he's he's giving his disciples this ability to bind and to loose he's giving the disciples to look at things in culture and say wait 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 whoa no 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 that's a foul ball and to look at other things and say no no we need to cling to this one like this one is good this one is very beautiful do you see like um, early on, you know, in the civil rights movement here in Birmingham, I just kind of thought about this. Like I'm trying to think what's an example of binding and loosing. You had all of these black pastors. The civil rights movement was launched and was fueled by black pastors like Martin Luther King Jr. and Fred Shuttlesworth and others that, that are in our city, many of them who have brothers and family members and um, goodness um, I, I need to tell you about sometime when Fred Shuttlesworth's wife okay she actually showed up in our nonprofit and brought and delivered a couch to us we had his couch in our nonprofit for a while it was, it was incredible um, just their downsizing and you know, he's, he's dead and um, was a pastor who carried the torch of civil rights okay what did they do they, they loosed certain things and they bound other things. They said, no, 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 no. Like, like certain things need to be loose. Like black men and women need to be loose to be free, to be equal. And certain things like segregation need to be bound, they need to be forbidden. This doesn't fulfill Torah. Do you see and Jesus was giving He was giving his followers? And you could you could think of other examples through through life even now. Because the scripture, the Torah, and the essence of it has to be interpreted in every single, every single culture, in every single era. Okay, now, now there's this other phrase that I, I want to show you. There's this other idea that that, that I want to show you. It's not just binding and loosing. I, I've told you about that. It's not um, just the fulfilling Torah. It's this other phrase that they would say. It's called this. Well, well, it just goes like this. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say, no, 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 turn the other cheek. You've, you've heard it said that... Uh, If anyone makes a vow in a certain way, and vows by the temple, or vows by the gold on the temple, or vows by... But I say to you, no, 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 just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Now, this was a common way that they would... Um, delineate between different schools of thought, different rabbis. So, uh, you know, by the time, again, let me kind of repeat some of it. He started off with 10 words, and those 10 words turned into 16, 613 laws, and those 613 laws expanded to all the Old Testament, and that expanded to now all of a sudden we've got this um, Mishnah, which is the oral tradition where everybody explains what it means, and now that all expands. So we've got the commentaries on top of that, which are called the Talmud, and we've got fences and hedges and everything around it. It's gotten so overbearing. And there was this way that they would debate between different parts of the Mishnah and different parts of the Talmud, these commentaries on the commentary, where people were really saying, hey, no, my commentary is the right way, or, or no, 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 here's how I see it, or no, no, here's how, here's how I see it. And, and they would compare what some people had said with what they were saying. And so they were kind of in a healthy, um, in a healthy debate type way, um, with much honor and with much respect. Because you couldn't even be in the circle unless you had two different people lay their hands on you or release you publicly to minister. By the time it got to this point. Which was honestly probably a healthy way. And they actually called it Shmiha. They called it authority when you had that. And so you had to have different people lay hands in publicly release shoes. Which, by the way, is an interesting thing because over and over, the one thing the Pharisees asked Jesus over and over and over is this question. Where did you get your authority? Who credentialed you? Who released you to do all this binding and loosing? And you've heard it said, but I say to you, who, who gave you the right to stand up and even weigh in on this stuff, right? And so, um, of course, Jesus, um, he defers and says, well, um, John the Baptist was one of them. So where did he get his authority? And he kind of stumps them because everybody knew that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they instantly get stumped right there because they, the Scripture just says that if they said, well, that doesn't count, well, everybody loved John. And they knew he, he did have authority. He had authority to pass it on, right? And so it stumps them. Um, where did you get your authority to bind and to loose and to say you've heard it said, but I say, this this was the way they... Compared, this is the way they contrasted. This is the way they were growing, and the way they would debate. So when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, obviously when you start reading it. Jesus is picking up on all these ideas. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, "Hey, I didn't come to, um, I didn't come to destroy or to abolish the Torah. I came to fulfill it. I came to show you. I came to show you and fulfill and show you by living out the essence of the target." of the heart of it he says you've heard it said um, this but i'm gonna raise the bar and i'm gonna show you and i'm gonna raise the bar and say hey don't be legalistic like the scribes and pharisees like let your righteousness be not just outward let it let it be the heart like let it be transformative you've heard it said this but i say and he gives his disciples the authority to bind and to loose now here, here's kind of where i want to start landing this plane for the day because i started talking about simplicity in all of this a rabbi's system of teaching his train of thought his his um, uh, if you could say for instance well what what does this rabbi teach or what's what's his what what's his core like what what's the message his his message was called now get this this is this is amazing his message was called A yoke. A yoke. Now now think about that, because Jesus, He says things like this, okay? He, He says things like this. Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and take my yoke. There's the word. All you who are burdened down with religion. All you who are burdened down with trying to keep the system going. All of you who are shackled and think, if I do another good thing, it will be enough. Surely at some point I'm going to turn the corner and breakthrough is coming. Because somebody told me it would. He says, no, no, no. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Come to me because my yoke is easy. My burden, the burden I give you, is light. He's contrasting with scribes, with Pharisees, who do things like in Matthew 23, 4, it says that they tithe mint and cumin. And Jesus says, great, you want to tithe mint and cumin? Great, but don't neglect the heavier, weightier matters of the law, like showing justice and mercy, right? Don't make it complex. Make it simple and look for people. Look for, look for, look for the people. See, so here's here's what's interesting to me too, in the middle of all of these conversations, is like Jesus is always driving this towards people. Now there's this passage we typically take it to mean like church discipline, okay? Matthew 18, 15. And in that, Jesus is like talking to the church, says, hey, if your brother sins, go try to win your brother, not not go try to win the argument. Go try to win your brother, and if that doesn't work, take a witness and try to win your brother. Try to win the relationship, and if that doesn't work, tell it to the church, okay? And and, and if they don't listen even then, let him be to you as a Gentile or as a sinner or a tax collector is what the phrase says, which is odd because, you know, who's Jesus always hanging out with and trying to restore his tax collectors and sinners? All right, next verse, Matthew 16, 18. He says to this, again, same phrase, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it's going to be dying. Where two or three of you gather in my name, there, I'm there in the midst of you. Like Jesus is giving his church authority for some incredible things like even in John 20, verse 23, he even gives authority to forgive sin. Like, even now, we can make some determinations and go up to people, you know. And I think about some of the guys that I've dealt with that have been in combat and been veterans, or some of the people that I know that have messed up really big. It's like he gives us authority to say, Hey, you know what, you're forgiven of that. Like, because why? We can bind and we can loose and we can make things. Easy because Jesus's yoke is not commentary on commentary on oral tradition on top of 613 rules on top of ten words. His is just the heart, right? It's it's easy. Now here here's another interesting tidbit. This is going way longer than what I thought it it might, but you know, I I guess you can kind of ramble if you keep it on target, right? So in Acts chapter 15, the the, the move is. Or, or the decision is the church is growing and they've grown from a Jerusalem uh, Jewish movement to really they're collecting Gentiles. It's all around the world, like they're all catching like wildfire and following Jesus as the Messiah. Now, when it was a Jewish movement, you remember all the Jewish males were circumcised. That was a sign they'd been given to Abraham back in the Book of Genesis. And so early on, they're circumcised. The Gentiles they were coming in contact with were not. And the question becomes. Do the Gentile guys who are coming to faith, do they need to go under the knife? Do they, do they need to have a little bit of surgery? Do they need to make a cut to be circumcised? And so the Jerusalem council gets together and calls all these leaders from all around and they get together to decide. And that is the question that's on the table is what kind of determination are we going to make? And so they, they debate for a couple of days And they talk about how the Spirit is caught on by wildfire in other areas and how, goodness, you know, you can see they're they're talking about what happened in, I I imagine, Samaria. What happened with Cornelius' house, as I talked about in the previous episodes with the Holy Spirit coming upon them. What (laughs) happened in Ephesus? What happened there? And they're all celebrating as this happened. And they get together. And again, the question on the table is, do... Do they need to be circumcised? Or or even how much of the law, how, how much of these 613 laws and how much of this commentary on top of the commentary do they need to follow to become Christians? That's what's on the table. And you read the answer in, in Acts chapter 15. It says this in verse 8. That In, in James, Jesus' little brother is the one that answers it, right? So he, he would have been Jewish. He would have been circumcised. He says, God who knows the heart, because that's the core, right? God bore witness to all of them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did us, and He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, why, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke? There's the word. Why are we placing a system of teaching? Why would we place a law? Why would we place a bird, why don't we place a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He says, we haven't been able to keep up with ten words, much less 613 rules, much less the commentaries and oral tradition, you know, the Talmud that was on top of that, Mishnah, much less the legal requirements that were on top of that. We can't do this. But we believe they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will now now I like this, like they keep on going verse 28 of, of acts 15 and this is a great phrase right here. it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is the intro to the letter they're writing to these churches. you think like notice how casual that seems. how familiar it seems how intimate like it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. like we got together with the Holy Spirit and we talked and we decided like this is the authority Jesus has given. His church is, we can just get together and we, we can just decide this. Like and, and, I, and I know some of you who may be from like a more head-centered Baptist Presbyterian type background, like you might be freaking out right now going, well, uh, th- that's going to lead people to just to make up a bunch of stuff and say it's acceptable. No, no, it doesn't look, it's, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden, no greater yoke than these requirements. Now notice this, verse 29, that you abstain from what the Lord um or you abstain from food sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Like that, that's the decision. If you keep these, you'll do well, farewell. Like that's the letter. That's the decision of all the circumcision issue. It's just two sentences. Abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and from blood. Don't eat blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, meat sacrificed sacrifice to idols. Later on, Paul, um, in 1 Corinthians, he releases that one. He goes, you know, um, if that's a stumbling block for a brother and you're eating with them, don't do it. Don't do it. But, gosh, you know, if you want to eat the meat, eat the meat. Okay, so he loses it. Now, they never loose sexual immorality. They always keep that one bound. They always say, no, 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 no. Like, one guy... One gap, like intimate, monogamous, because this is a beautiful, this is the way it's created. This is a creation core issue. This was how things were in the beginning, but all this other, like they just reduce it to like, that's your rule. And I think they reduce it to that in some point because Paul says in Ephesians 5, that that relationship, that marriage vow, that relationship, that covenant really mirrors and teaches us something about Christ and the church and Christ and his bride. And, and he says, this is a mysterious thing. It's a mystical thing. I can't explain it, but somehow I see it and I sense it and I feel it. You see what happened at the Jerusalem Council? They effectively bind, forbid, meet sacrifice to idols. They loosen. They allow everything else. You want to get circumcised? Get circumcised. You want not to? Don't. Paul says in Galatians, he has these guys that are trying to say, hey, you're holier if you follow this rule. You're holier if you get circumcised. I'm going to see if I can flip and find it while I'm talking to you. You know, I think I might be able to. It says you're holier if you do this. You're holier if you follow them. Like people do that now, don't they? Like, people say, like, hey, if you can follow these rules, then you're holier. If you follow those rules, then you're better if you um, do the, You know, like, don't we come up with criteria like this all the time, even today? Paul talks to these people, and he says, no, 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 more rules. That's not going to work. He goes, think, think, think logically with me. Like, he'd say, hey, l- l- let's just go back to our history, we started with ten words, and we've added six hundred and thirteen, and then we added the the Mishnah, you know, on top of that, which was the oral tradition. We've added the Talmud, you know, the comments on top of that. Now we've got all these rabbis kind of splintering, like, "Hey, well, you've heard this, but I say this, and you've heard this." I said, "No, like, there's no end to rule keeping." He says, "Logically, like, think about it. If you think a little cut, a little circumcision makes you holier, just emasculate yourself. Like, just cut the entire thing off." Is is what he says. And, and you know like he's kidding right you, you know that he's not not being serious. He, he's just drawing out the hyperbole and he says no 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 Galatians 5:1 it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't go back under a just quoting Paul it is for freedom Christ set you free. Don't go back under a yoke of slavery. Don't go back under a burden, a system of teaching. Hey, hey, this is all you need to do, and then no, 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 no. Christ has already done, He came to make it easy, He came to get rid of the yoke, He came to simplify, to, to use the phrase I was talking about earlier, minimalist in all of the rules. I am looking so forward to releasing like this next series. Of talks in the book and every other thing to you because you're gonna see that Jesus on the cross has been so far more successful than we always think than we imagine than we dream possible and his yoke is grand and it is a yoke of freedom it is simple and you just receive it and then experience it so um I'm stroking at about 52 minutes right here, so I'm going to sign off for the week or for the episode. As I sign off, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May He be gracious to you. May He make His face of favor shine upon you brightly, brilliantly. And may you realize Jesus didn't come to make it infinitely more complex. We did that all by ourselves. He came to make a yoke easy to make it simple. So when you see things that need to be forbidden, bind them. When you see things that need to be loosed and allowed, loose them. And when you see things and say, hey, I've heard it said this way, but I'm going to see it and say it now this way. So long as it honors the simplicity of the yoke of Christ, which was to love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor, honor your neighbor as yourself, and in so doing, you fulfill the law of love. May you go in peace and do it. Be blessed. I'll talk to you again soon.